right. Let me uh, start with a few announcements. A reminder to pray for Camp Arete. reminder that communion in May will be the third Sunday instead of the second. And we'll have our men's prayer breakfast the week after that on Saturday, the May, May the 21st. When's Memorial Day? Has anybody checked on that? Check on that. Um, and then I'm sure we'll hear from Jeff Phipps before long and get an update on, on what they did in, in Brazil. I got an email here that just came in from Roberta Beaver that was forwarded from uh, Jessica, her, her daughter, that a young couple, Christian couple, Christina and Joy Black, have two children who are four years and five months. And they were renting a house with uh, their elderly father in Bear Creek when their home was flooded yesterday. And they had to evacuate and were able to recover some clothing, shoes, and diapers, but they lost all of their vehicles and all of their furniture. They've got a temporary shelter, but they will need furniture when they move into a new place in less than a month. And Joy will also need the use of a vehicle to get to and from work. So keep them in prayer. Their immediate needs are for beds and the use of a vehicle. So anybody who can provide um, that, that would be welcome. You can probably contact either Jessica or uh, or Roberta about about this. They need two queen beds, a twin or full bed, a crib, dressers, chest of drawers, couches, kitchen table, and chairs. I'm sure there's a lot of situations like that, and I don't, haven't heard of any situations like that within our congregation, but we need to be re- ready to uh, stand in the gap if, if necessary. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, and that means that that uh, if necessary, we need to confess sin. Scripture says that when we sin, we're no longer walking according to the Spirit, but we're walking according to the sin nature. So when we confess sin, we are forgiven and cleansed. That's the wonderful grace of God who does not take into account our sins, and He forgives us. And so we're cleansed of all unrighteousness so we can recover that walk by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together to study this evening, to reflect upon your grace and your word, and to learn principles that are uh, exhibited in the events of the Old Testament, uh, things that we need to pay attention to, things that we need to learn, things that are there for our edification, for our our <clears throat> growth, our maturity. Father, we pray that as we study, we might be able to focus and set aside the things that distract us. Focus upon your word. Father, we're thankful, too, for the fact that uh, we've got a great uh, missionary here in Houston, George Mueller, who has served you for many years, but he is really struggling right now as a result of this automobile accident. We pray that you would be merciful to him and that he would be out of pain and that he would be uh, his body would be healing and uh, strengthening even as uh, he is going through this difficult time in the hospital. We pray for his family also as they... Uh, had flooding in the house and and uh, different things happen and we just pray for uh, folks who are around them to strengthen them and sustain them and help them in this in this time of difficulty. Father, we pray for us as a church that we might always be ready to stand in the gap for others to love one another as Christ loved the church, and that we might be an example to others as to how Christians relate to other believers. And we pray that we might be challenged again by your word this evening in Christ's name, Amen. All right, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 15 to 46. I don't know how far I'll get. I think I can get through this. This is a broad narrative situation, 
And we need to go through this and being mindful of the fact that all Scripture is given by <clears throat> by God's inspiration, by the inspiration of God breathing out through human authors and is profitable for teaching. And sometimes we look at passages in the Old Testament and we're not so sure what the lesson is. But there are some important lessons here. And what we're seeing, as I pointed out last time, is an important contrast between Jonathan, who is trusting the Lord, and Saul, who is trusting in his own works or his own effort. And uh, I often find that, that we all have this tendency to look at uh, some situations like this, either in our own life and experience or in situations in the Scripture, and think, well, you know, I'm not so sure about Saul. He really was blowing it. And forget that, but for the grace of God, there go you and I. So what I want to do is start off with a little review so that we catch the drift of what is going on here, and then we will uh, we will move forward. This passage really is an exhibition on Saul's foolishness. He has a <clears throat> foolish heart. He has foolish thinking because he has rejected the plan of God. And as a result of that, foolish things come out of his mouth. So I titled the lesson, Watch Your Mouth. You never know what's going to come out. Okay, I was trying to sort of abridge the review, and it was hard with all these good pictures. So we'll kind of run through them a little more rapidly than normal. Uh, <clears throat> this is a broad view of Israel, of the Mediterranean to the west. We have the Jordan River to the east. It flows from the north in the Sea of Galilee down to the south in the Dead Sea. And as you can see from the topography, uh, the shading in this map, that the center part of the country then as now is the high country, the, the hill country. And this is, uh, this is critical for a lot of different reasons, but militarily the high country is always your valuable uh, territory because that puts you in a position of strength over your enemies. For those of you who have never been to Israel, you have an area that's right here in this area where Soko is. You have, uh, uh, <clears throat> you have the coast over here of, uh, uh, this is Tel Aviv is, is further south, like right about here, modern Tel Aviv. And uh, in this area, the, the West Bank comes along and comes within nine miles of the coast, right along the, the ridge line here. And the danger of that is that it puts all of the, the coastal plain of Israel, uh, in if, if it were taken over by an enemy, the Palestinians, then everything along the coast would be under the gun, literally, of an enemy force up on that ridge. That's why you can't go back to those 67, 67 borders. And about 75% of Israel's population lives along the coast here from Haifa, which is just north up here, all the way down uh, to Ashdod. And this area along the coast is, is the heart of their uh, computer technology industrial area. About 90% of their uh, business is along the coast. So it, it, when you, I have had the opportunity to stand on this ridge at one of the uh, Jewish uh, communities up there that is constantly being uh, criticized by the UN and the EU and uh, some liberals in this country that they need to give this back to the uh, to the Palestinians, but if they were to do that, that would be like committing suicide. The same kind of thing exists further north off the map in the Golan Heights. And just today, or yesterday, I believe Netanyahu said that they would, Israel would never give up the Golan. And our wonderful, historically anti-Israel, anti-Semitic State Department said, no, we don't agree with that. 
you can't say that. We're not going to back that up because they need to give it back someday. Well, if you've ever been on that terrain, the Golan is like up, is up on a high plateau, and it puts all of the Galilee under the artillery that an enemy force would put there. Those of you who've been there uh, have seen that. And if, you're, if the enemy is up there, in fact, it was under the control of Syria up until the, um, uh, I think it was the 74 war, the Yom Kippur war, it was under the control of Syria. And they were lobbing shells across the Sea of Galilee just randomly. You think it's rough with terrorist attacks and bombs going off in buses and things like that. Just have uh, artillery shells come in. Uh, randomly day in and day out as you're trying to farm or live in the cities or something like that. So that's um, this terrain, the, the hill country, the central part. In fact, this green and yellow line here that comes down from uh, literally from Mount Gilboa up here down through Tirzah, Shkim, uh, Shiloh, Bethel, all the way down to Bethlehem and further south if we went all the way down to, to Hebron, that's called the tra- Trail of the Patriarchs, and you can they have this marked out uh, in Israel. And there are signs, and there are uh, there are uh, uh, mitzvot that are very ancient along that way, showing this was the way that the pilgrims would travel on their way to the feast days in Jerusalem. The territory that we're focusing on in the center is this territory uh, here that is the uh, around Michmash, Geba, and Gibeah of Saul. Uh, this is uh, Saul's town. The Philistines originally were Geba. Jonathan ran them out. They retreated across the Wadi Suwini, and they are over in Michmash. Now, what we see two geographical features that we're going to look at. You have this Wadi that runs this way that has high cliffs on it, and then right over here where you see Till Miriam, there is a cross uh, path that runs that way, and that's going to be the site of part of this battle. We saw it this way. The foreground is uh, Gibeah of Saul. The intermediate area is Geba, and the distant, uh, somewhat elevated area is the area of Michmash. This gives us a nice uh, aerial shot here, and we can see Michmash here on the right, and then the pass of Michmash here, running across where part of the battle takes place. The two, the cliffs, uh, Bozes and Sinab, Sinez on the uh, north side, Bozes on the south side that's mentioned in the text where, where Saul scales these cliffs to be able to attack a Philistine outpost there. And then this map reveals what happens in the, as the Philistines, the black lines, they initially sent out uh, troops from Michmash to the north to pre- prevent uh, Ephraim from sending in reinforcements to Israel from the north. They sent another uh, contingent out towards the Zeboim Valley in order to prevent any reinforcements coming from that direction. And then they sent another group out here towards Beth Horon. And then later in the chapter tells us that they sent out a fourth uh, contingent to the, the path to the pass of uh, Michmash. And so Saul is basically trapped here on the south side at Geba with about 600 men. And he is uh, outnumbered about three, uh, three or four to one and has to go into battle. So we're told that this battle starts at the initiation of Jonathan because Jonathan trusts the Lord. And Jonathan decides... Uh, after a period of boredom that somebody has to take the initiative, Saul is not taking the initiative. And that's always an important principle that if you're going to win, you have to take the initiative. If you're going to win and be a victor in the spiritual life, you have to take the initiative to learn the Bible and to study the Word and to make time for it, to read your Bible on a daily basis, even if all you can squeeze out initially is a chapter. Start with that. But uh, most people can afford about 15 minutes a day to read through to read through their Bible. I've got a tricky switch here. It should. What happened? I touched it. It came loose. There we go. Now I found it. 
okay, we have to make a decision, a priority decision. Are we going to have a regular schedule, create a regular schedule in our lives where we are at Bible class or we can live stream? Because I know there are folks who live locally but can't get here because they don't get home from work until late and they have to get up very early. I know that there's at least one man in the congregation who has to report in at an extremely early shift around 5 o'clock in the morning. And when you've got jobs like that, you just know you can't you can't make it to uh, uh, to Bible class at night. It just throws you too late. You have to take care of yourself. But that's why we have live streaming. But if you can make it, you should. It's important for the congregation to be together, for people to be together, uh, to encourage each other. So we're told in 14.1 and 2 that Saul is uh, sitting in a defensive position outside of uh, the hill. He's probably overlooking that chasm just south of Michmash. Uh, it's translated Gibeah here, but Gibeah means hill. And so it's important and difficult sometimes to distinguish whether you're talking about Gibeah as the location of Saul's town or whether you're talking about a hill. And since Saul has already moved up to Geba, it wouldn't make sense that he retreated back to Gibeah. He's sitting there, but he's just waiting. He's not taking any initiative. And I pointed out last time that the way the text reads, there are some that suggest, I don't know, we don't know if this is right or not, that perhaps this large cave, there's a lar- there are many large caves along that cliff face that one of, that they had, and these things were named just like the cliffs were named. Um, and so this would be uh, possibly the name of the, the cave, and he's in there with his 600 waiting for something to take, take place. Then in verse 3, we learn that he has Ahitab with him, or excuse me, Ahijah with him, and Ahijah is the high priest. Now, what's important of this is that it tells us some interesting information, just sort of background. Ahijah is the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of uh, Pinchas, or Pincus, as we translate it into English, uh, Pinchas, the son of uh, Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. Now, I want you to point that out. I didn't, I wasn't going to go any further in the text last week, so I wanted to come back to this. All that's mentioned here is he's there and he's wearing an ephod. An ephod is the priestly garment, as I've got in the illustration there. And as part of the ephod, you had two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And the Urim and the Thummim were used in some way to communicate with God, whether these different stones glowed or or you use them like lots, and the, if they landed on one side, it meant one thing, landed on another side, something else. We don't know, and we're not sure. But that was one way to communicate uh, with God, and one way God would communicate with people. And so we're just told in almost a parenthetical statement that Ahijah is with uh, is with Saul, and then we're told, as a side note, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. He's taken off, and the people are there. I showed you this slide last week to trace out the house of Eli. Remember, God said that Eli's line would terminate and would not be permanent. And this will end with, with Ahijah. And so we have an interesting connection between Saul, who's lost his dynasty, and Ahijah, who's the end of the house of Eli for the priesthood. Two failures who are joined together here. And the thing that we ought to learn from this is that despite the spiritual failure of Saul and the spiritual failure of Ahijah and the house of Eli, God's grace still works for Israel. And that's an important point because a lot of times we fail in the Christian life and others around us fail, and it's real easy to be hypercritical. We're not, I'm not justifying failure, but God's grace is remarkable. It is magnificent, and it works in our favor even when and mostly when it doesn't, uh, we don't deserve it at all. We saw this last week that Jonathan took off between the passes and uh, crossed over to the north side and climbed up the 
rock face of Sinai, which is the north face here. And I showed you these pictures just to get a sense of the rugged terrain there. And we see how tough it is and how steep it is, and that this uh, demanded a certain amount of energy and climbing skill. And so this happens in the early part of the day. And I don't know if any of you have ever done a lot of hiking or backpacking or climbing, but it can uh, really wear you out, especially when you hit the top of the ridge and you have to go into hand-to-hand combat. And so this would have depleted uh, Jonathan's energy as he goes up on top of the uh, uh, of this cliff. And, and what we should note here is that there are many times when we're in a position of weakness in our life due to physical circumstances, due to emotional circumstances, due to the outside pressures of life in, in the form of adversity, and we have to decide whether we're going to uh, trust in God despite the pressure from our sin nature to choose the wrong option or the easy option, or whether we're going to continue to trust in God. Having feelings of despair and fear are in and of themselves not wrong. It's what you do with them that's wrong. Having feelings of anger or resentment, these emotions that well up within us at times, that, that the issue that having those emotions may be normal as human beings, but what you do with them, uh, that's what's important. That's when you decide to engage the sin nature uh, in those areas of sin. So we see this, and this is important for background, and I closed last time dealing with the last little section here in 14.6 down through uh, through 9, where Jonathan, where it shows that Jonathan understood that the battle was the Lord's. The battle was the Lord's with Moses coming out against the Egyptians. The battle was the Lord when they faced the Amalekites. The battle was the Lord's when they uh, faced, uh, uh, when the Israelites came in and they took Jericho again and again and again. This is a theme we see in Scripture, and God specializes in taking those who have little so that they don't have anything on which to trust uh, in terms of their own human viewpoint. And God is the one who comes in, and he is the one who protects and provides, and he is our, uh, he is our fortress. So we went through this last time. And another thing I wanted to point out is in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, So his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Now I want to point something out. There is a lot of discussion among exegetes and commentators about what it means when it says that that uh, in, in 1 Samuel 13, 14 and other places that David was a man after God's own heart. And it's sort of a knee-jerk theological response to say this is God's choice. But as I was going through the Hebrew text on this uh, today, it struck me after teaching this last week that the same exact construction is used by Jonathan's armor bearer that's used in 1314 to describe David as a man after God's own heart. And so after Jonathan has said to uh, his armor bearer, let's take on these uncircumcised Philistines and their at they're uh, outnumbered at least 10 to 1. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or saving by a few. So his armor bearer has to also trust in God. He, he's not the only one trusting in God to deliver them. He puts this on the armor bearer, and the armor bearer says, Do everything that's in your heart. In other words, do whatever you want to. You're the leader, I'm following you. And then he says, and I'm with you. It is a clear statement of loyalty, a statement of obedience to Jonathan, that he will stick with Jonathan whatever takes place. And then he says, I'm with you according to your heart. That is exactly the same phrase. So we could translate this, uh, go then, here I am with you, a man after your own heart. It's the exact same phrase. So that indicates that this is not a phrase related to the choice of Jonathan 
or the choice of God for David, but it is a clear statement that the, the what's valuable in David is what's valuable in the armor bearer, and that is they have a commitment to God. They want to serve God no matter what. The armor bearer wants to serve Jonathan uh, no matter what. And then I was a little quick going through some of this. Jonathan shows a way to discern God's will. So many people in evangelical Christianity have the idea that that, that they sort of navel gaze. It's a soft sort of mysticism that that somehow I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, set up a set of almost irrational conditions, and if God fits fits those conditions, then I know that that's what God wants me to do. It's the putting out the fleece test I talked about last time in Judges six. But Gideon had already been told specifically what God wanted him to do. But Gideon came up with this test with the fleece in order to try to avoid it. He thought that somehow if he could set up a condition, it would be more, it would be difficult for God uh, to solve that or, or to do that, to, to leave the fleece dry and the area around it wet and then to leave the uh, fleece wet and the area around it dry. But God surprised him because God is showing that he is more powerful than our circumstances and that when he tells us to do something, he's going to give us the resources to do it even when we're scared to death. And you go back and read Judges 6 and Judges 7, and after in Judges, the first part of Judges 7, after uh, Gideon has had his numbers uh, taken from 32,000 down to 300, he is still fearful, and God met Gideon where he was. Gideon's very different from Saul. Gideon still wanted to do what God God's will was, but he wasn't really sure. He was weak. And so God says, okay, if you're still fearful, I want you to take your, uh, your armor bearer, and I want you to go down to the camp of the Midianites, and the Midianites... Uh, and you'll you'll hear something, and that's what happened. He went down there and he overheard two Midianites talking, and one of them had had a dream and told the other one what the dream was, and the other guy interpreted it. Well, that means that 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 Gideon is going to defeat us. And so when Gideon heard that, that strengthened his faith, and so then he went back, organized his men, divided them into three companies of a hundred each gave them their torches and their uh, 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 pottery uh, cover for the torches and then uh, told them what the signal would be, and they used that uh, on the signal. They all broke the pots surrounding the torches, and as a result of that, uh, they were able to uh, scare the daylights out of the the Midianites. So this is what takes, takes place. God is the one who's going to give them the battle. So this is what happens with with Saul. I mean, with Jonathan and his armor bearer. They showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and what Jonathan had said was that we're going to set up a situation here. And he's not just picking a random situation. He's not the person who says, "Well, if I get up in the morning and my car doesn't start, then God doesn't want me to go to work." Or if I get up in the I'm dating a girl, and if she wears a dress, then I'll ask her to marry me. But if she has on uh, blue jeans, then I'll know it's not God's will. I mean, people really come up with those kinds of just random situations to make decisions, thinking that somehow that's how you discern God's will. And I'm sure there are people who've used this that way, that Jonathan is just making this idea up. He said if they... If they uh, let us come up, then God's given us the battle, but if they come down to us, then then we're going to lose. But he's thought this through. This shows how we dis- make decisions in a crunch. We think through the tactics of the situation and decide, okay, uh, for example, if you're making a business decision or you have had a job opportunity, then you say, okay, if here are the roadblocks that I see to this decision. And somehow, if God provides a solution to those roadblocks, then I'm going to know that that must be God's will for me to go in that that direction. If God does not uh, take away those roadblocks or provide a solution, then I'm going to know that it's not God's not opening the door. That's how I ended up at Preston City Bible Church. 
I really didn't want to go north of the Mason-Dixon line. And, uh, you know, Bryce just had sent me a letter, finally got me to come up there to do a Bible conference, and I did that and noticed the congregation was really positive and it seemed like a great group of people, but I just couldn't figure out how to make that transition in mid-year. Uh, Pam would need to work. Teachers don't change jobs in the middle of the year. It, it just doesn't happen. And so as the board was crafting their uh, proposal to me, one uh, Sunday afternoon I checked my email and that morning in the Norwich Bulletin, Anne had spotted an ad that the Norwich school system was looking for a Spanish, native Spanish-speaking teacher that was uh, elementary certified that could start work immediately uh, and would be able to pioneer a world language program, a Spanish language program for the elementary schools in, in Norwich. And I remember looking at that. I read it twice, and I said, Pam, we're going to Connecticut. It was clear as it could be, and we had five days to get her resume in and uh, met the deadline, and they interviewed her over the phone and hired her over, I think it was eight or ten in-district applicants and hired her over the phone, sight unseen, and next thing we knew, we were starting to move to Connecticut. That's how it happens. You're not looking for, you know, some kind of magical thing to happen. You think it through logically and rationally. And if God is behind something, then God is going to supply the resources. And if he's not, he won't supply the resources. So this is what Jonathan is, is talking about here. This is the basis of his, of his rationale. And he said, if they ask, he told his armor bearer, if they ask us to come up, then we'll go up and we'll know that God's delivered us into their hand. And so they went up, and Jonathan and his armor bearer worked like a good team, and Jonathan would knock him down, and his armor bearer would kill them. And so they took out 20 in an area about half an acre, and this created uh, trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the all the people, the garrison, the raiders also trembled. I mean, all of a sudden, everybody knows that the battle's engaged and they're scared to death. They have been sitting there across from each other trying to figure out who's going to start this for who knows how long. The text isn't clear. When it happens, uh, Saul's uh, watchers uh, in, uh, see what is going on, and they see the multitude. They see the Philistines begin to fall back and that something is happening. And Saul cried out to the people, call the roll and see who's gone out from us. Somebody's missing. Who's starting this action is what he is saying. And then he decides he's going to get in on the divine guidance trick. Now, this is how how not to do it, because what we're seeing here is a situation where where he's going to try to use God to justify his purpose, which is another thing people often do. I, I, I've heard my whole life people say, to justify something they're doing that they shouldn't, well, it must be God's will, or I know this is God's will. How do you know? Well, I just know. Well, God doesn't ever work that way. Anything God communicates to somebody in private, as we've seen all through Samuel, he makes an objective verification of so that it's not ever up to somebody's uh, liver quiver to determine what the will of God is. So what he does at this point uh, in verse um, 18, Saul turns to Ahijah. And what I pointed out from two two lessons back is Saul, like a lot of politicians and like a lot of Christians, like to use religion for cover. They like to have that facade, that veneer of religiosity that's going to justify their behavior. So he calls to Ahijah, and he says, verse 18 at the bottom of the screen, bring the ark of God here. And then in parentheses, for that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. It had returned. We've seen that, gone through that episode uh, much, much earlier. Now, what would go, take place here is that something that I uh, referred to earlier using the uh, Ur- possibly the Urim and Thummim because he has the ephod with him. And there's some debate, a lot of debate actually, as to whether 
this should be read, bring the ark of God here or bring the ephod here. And part of the reason that people suggest that, that this should be the, um, this should be the ephod is because, where I put that page? Because there are, first of all, there's a, the, the, the words for ark and the word for ephod are very close in Hebrew. So it could easily be a, a uh, transmission error where the wrong word was copied. And some people say that. So that second th- argument is that the ark hasn't been mentioned. The only thing that's mentioned that uh, Ahijah has is the ephod. And what we've seen so far from Judge, I mean, from 1 Samuel 7, 1, and later in 2 Samuel 6, that the ark is in, has been in Kiriath-Jerim, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And so the assumption has been made by some that because it's in Kiriath-Jerim in 1 Samuel 6, and it's in, I mean, 1 Samuel 7, and it's in Kiriath-Jerim in 2 Samuel 6, that it didn't move in between. But there's no reason the ark couldn't have been brought into battle already, and it's already in the general location, so they don't have to send back to Kiriath-Jerim to get it. It's already uh, in either in Gibeah or uh, in Geba, where Paul, uh, where where Saul is. Uh, Another thing that they talk about here is that what we have is is that this is really the the and many commentators and some translations take this as um, as the ephod of God and the use of stones to or the casting of lots but the use of stones to determine the will of God. I'm going to give you a new vocabulary word. The word is cephomancy. Heptomancy is when you are consulting, you, you kill, sacrifice an animal, you cut out the liver, and you read the liver to get um, to determine what the future is. Necromancy is when you're consulting the dead to find out about the future. Well, this is cephomancy, which is the uh, which is divination by means of white and black stone. So, I just thought I ran across that word in my study. Thought I would share that with you, so that can be your new vocabulary. Uh, word for the day. All of a sudden, I have a whole bunch of black slides. Okay. Now, what we see here is this: this he's using a hijah just to cover up his actions. He's using using a hijah uh, to give some sort of divine justification for his behavior. And then we read in verse verse uh, nineteen. That it happened. It, I don't have a slide on that. That it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which in the, in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So they're in a rout. They are the ones that are now living in Panic Palace. If you remember when uh, a little while earlier it was the Jews that when the Philistines came in with their three thousand chariots and their six thousand charioteers and probably some infantry that the Israelites were the ones who were hiding in the halls and hiding in the caves and scared to death and crossing the Jordan and running away. And so now it's the Philistines that have moved into Panic Palace, but they don't have a divine solution. So the confusion increases, and uh, it's a little difficult to translate and to understand some of the ways this has been translated, but the way that makes the most sense to me is that if we read this uh, as now it happened while or until Saul talked or until Saul said this to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So the priest is there, the priest is trying to consult with God, and all of this is going on, and they hear the sound of the battle across the, uh, across the, the, the ravine, across the wadi, and then finally, Saul turns to the priest and says, withdraw your hand. Now, all through this, I've talked about Gideon's 300. What we see with Gideon is that he's trusting God, fearful though he may be. But Saul isn't trusting God. Saul is very much trying to control the situation. 
he first tells Ahijah um, that he needs to, to come forward and bring the ark up here. Then when he is consulting God's will, he says, okay, now you can stop. He's trying to control the situation, which is how a lot of people are. I've been surprised over the years of how people try to control God. They want to talk. They want to talk and act like they're uh, positive Christians, but they want to control what God's going to do in their life. And if things start getting out of control, then they just freak out, and they don't learn that the idea in the faith rest drill is to relax and to trust God, because God has our best interests in mind. So again, we see how Saul is operating on arrogance and that he is trying to use God for his own purposes. And what he does at this point in verse 20 is he got all the people together, assembled them, and they finally move out. There's a rout going on on the other side, and the only people causing the rout are Jonathan and his armor bearer. And the, the, the Philistines have just have just gone into a complete panic. Now, this is a God-induced panic. It is not due to what Jonathan and the armor-bearer have done. It's the same kind of thing that we see when Gideon's 300 attack the Midianites. In Judges chapter 7, 20 to 22, we read, Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord in Gideon. Now, this is not a tactic you're going to read very much about at West Point. It is a tactic, I said last time, that Ord Wingate emulated to attack the Arabs who were raiding the uh, Jewish uh, kibbutzim and and night raids during the uh, Arab Wars of the late 30s. Um, But this isn't the normal way to do it. And what happened was every man in the Midianite camp stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. As soon as they saw those lights and heard the blast of the trumpets, because typically there would be a a torch and trumpets for every maybe 100 or 200 men, they thought there was a huge army attacking them, and they panicked. But it was God who put the panic in their heart. They cried out, and then... And Judges 7.22, we're told, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion. It wasn't the tactic of Gideon that worked so well. It was God's work in the hearts of the enemy. And they fought against each other, and they were became scared of each other. This is exactly what is happening uh, in this situation in 14.20 that every man's sword, that's talking about the Philistines, was against his neighbor, and there was great confusion. And then, uh, and this tells us a vital principle Paul summarized in Romans 8.31, what what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the principle through this whole episode. If you're teaching Sunday school, if you're teaching CEF, this is a great story to tell. It's got all the drama of a battle. It's got war. It's got people trusting God uh, when they don't have anything. And it's a great example of the principle that's stated in the New Testament. If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's another principle for, of, of hermeneutics. And you don't get doctrine directly from narrative passages and history. You get doctrine from the New Testament. But what you see in these episodes and these stories in the Old Testament are the illustrations in flesh and blood in everyday life of how those principles are fulfilled and carried out. And so we see Romans 8.31 exhibited here. Now in verse 20, uh, 21 we read, Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time. So now, first of all, In Samuel, the word Hebrews, when it refers to the Israelites as Hebrews, that's a pejorative term. There's all kinds of racially pejorative terms that can come to your mind, and when you use those terms, you know that somebody's making some kind of derogatory statement. The term Hebrews, as a reference for the Jews in Samuel, is a pejorative term, and here it's referring to some turncoats, some traitors who have allied themselves 
with the Philistines. And now that they see that the Philistines are being defeated and are losing, then suddenly they decide to change sides and go back to their, uh, to their brethren. So when uh, we're told that the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So now their numbers are vastly increasing. They're getting reinforcements. Remember, the Philistines blocked reinforcements from coming in from the north, from the east, and from the south. And now they're getting reinforcements from within the camp. See how God has turned the tide uh, so tremendously against the Philistines. And then we're told, verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So now they're coming down from the north. They're coming down from the north because the, the Philistines have heard about this route and their defenses are collapsing. And then the key verse, verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now, Beth-Avon is just about two to three miles north of Michmash. But I want you, if, you, if you're, you're writing in your Bible, and to make a note, is to connect 14.6 with 14.23. In 14.6, Jonathan said, For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or a few. Human circumstances don't deter God. Whatever problems we face in life, no matter how overwhelming they may appear, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how personally devastating, when, when we have dreams and hopes and security and the details of this life and suddenly that crumbles, God doesn't crumble. God is still in charge. God is still going to take care of those circumstances. And so we see that Jonathan recognizes that principle that whether, whether there's power, human power, human ability or not, God's the one who ultimately gives the victory. And then we're told in verse 23 that it's the Lord. It's not Jonathan and his tactics any more than it was Gideon and his tactics that saved the day. It was the Lord that saved Israel that day. Did they deserve it? No. Did, did Saul deserve it? Not at all. Did, did um, Ahijah observe, uh, uh, deserve it? No, not at all. But God in grace delivered Israel that day just as he still delivers us. But now there's another problem, something that hasn't been introduced yet, and that is the problem of Saul's foolish oath. And we read this starting in verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. And that means that they are uh, ex extremely upset, and it is a time of great, uh, of great difficulty for them, uh, just as it had been earlier, same word that was used earlier in the text. For Why were they distressed? Because Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening. Before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now this tells us something really interesting about Saul. First of all, we see how Saul is running everything just according to his own limited knowledge, doing it his way and not God's way. Now a lot of people look at something like this and say, see, how can Saul be a believer? Well, let's be reminded of a couple of things. First of all, when a person trusts in Christ, is a new creature in Christ, uh, or they become a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, they become a new creature in Christ, all things are new. But they still have a sin nature. Read Romans chapter 6. Again and again, Paul is telling the Romans that they need to consider themselves dead to sin. Well, why would he say that unless they are already considering themselves alive to sin? I don't think I need to tell anybody what it means to be alive to your sin nature. I think every one of us has a pretty good idea of what that means. Whatever the strengths and weaknesses of your sin nature are, uh, you know what it is to give in to that. And what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is that this is a very real possibility. Then in Romans 7, he uses himself as an example that, that many times he did what he didn't want to do and he didn't do what he wanted to do. And there's no mention in Romans 6 or Romans 7 of God the Holy Spirit. 
The first time we see the mention of God, the Holy Spirit, is we get into Romans 8. And in Romans 8, he says that, that we're either walking according to the flesh or we're walking according to the Spirit. Those are the only, only two options. So if a person is saved, they still have a sin nature. That sin nature is still as nasty and gnarly as, as it was when they were an unbeliever. And if they stop walking by the Holy Spirit and give in to their sin nature, it can be worse than what it was when they were an unbeliever. And yet God, God's grace still reaches out to each one of us when we get like that. But you have a lot of Christians today who come along and say, well, if they were really Christians. Well, the, the issue here is that, first of all, you're born, you're regenerated when you hear the gospel. But that doesn't mean there's any growth. Let's take the analogy with a newborn baby. A newborn baby comes along and is born. But that baby will not automatically grow if it is not given nutrition, if there's no food. And that food and those nutrients are necessary in order for that baby to grow. Same thing happens in the spiritual life. You get a new Christian, but he's never given any doctrine. He's never taught anything. He's never challenged with the word. All he knows is Christ died on the cross for him, and pretty soon his appetite just dries up and diminishes and he's often just led astray by a lot of false teaching, and the result is that he is now walking according to his sin nature. Now, he has no reason to ever live the Christian life because he's never been taught the Christian life. And so that's the importance of understanding the distinction between justification and sanctification. Sanctification is not an inevitable automatic result of justification. There has to be the feeding of the word. And we see that in First Peter 2, 2, which we'll get to eventually on Thursday nights, that there needs to be a, a desiring of the milk of the word. Saul is just a perfect example of the believer who has never shown any interest in the word, never cared. Uh, he's had some glimmerings here or there maybe, but he really is in it just for himself. And so... As a result, he makes these, he doesn't know any better, and he makes this rash oath. And what he says is, if anybody in the army, here's a military that is engaged in extremely rugged physical activity, and he says nobody can eat anything until uh, the end of the day, until evening, and until I have taken vengeance on all my enemies. So you got to hand it to the, the people. They all obeyed. They followed him. They didn't eat any food. Now we're told in verse 25, all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. Now years ago, right, as I was finishing up seminary, there was, I was required to take a, a two-hour Christian education elective. And coming from my background, Christian ed courses were not always looked upon with great favor. Often they were the simple courses, the Mickey Mouse courses, and I wasn't excited with what my options were that semester or that summer to get this elective. And then I realized that I could take this elective at another school and get it transferred back, and that would be acceptable. And I had uh, I had spent many years in Christian camping, and uh, Wheaton College had a actually had a master's in camp, master's degree in camp administration. They have a huge camp up in Wisconsin called Honey Rock, and they had a two week, two hour uh, Christian leadership seminar where you spent three days whitewater canoeing, and then another uh, ten days backpacking. Finish it up with a three-day uh, fast up on the beach of, uh, of Lake Superior. And I thought, that really beats sitting in a classroom for two weeks. And I get my two hours credit for it. So we did that. Well, what was, what was weird about that trip, this was at almost the exact same time that Mount St. Helens blew and blew all that ash into the air, which caused a weather change. Typically, the average high was 55 and the average low was in the 30s. And often, 
it was colder than that, and so you're encouraged to bring wool shirts and, and wool pants and a down jacket. Everybody in my team was from, were from Texas. Everybody was from Texas. And we got there, and that was, if you remember the summer of 1980, that was a, one of the hottest summers on record, not just in Texas, but in the UP in Michigan. It was hitting 90 every day. And you had a bunch of Texans up there trudging through the, the, the woods there in wool and in, you know, heavy clothing that we hadn't expected. We went almost one whole day where we could not refill our water bottles, probably half a day, where we couldn't refill our water bottles. And then we came into this heavily wooded area on the north side of a slope, and there were springs running down the side of that mountain. And, and all through there, wild leeks were growing. And, and every time I read this, I think about that because we were so thirsty and we were parched and hot. And we went through there, and we had all this water running down. We were able to refill our water bottles, and we were able to wash the mud and the dirt off the leeks, and we just cut the ends off, and we would we would just eat the leeks. And we felt so much better uh, when we got done with that. That's the kind of thing that's going on here with, uh, with Jonathan. One of the interesting things that we see here uh, when we talk about this is that, that honey – has such a restorative effect. And that's exactly what we see. Uh, Jonathan, uh, they, they went into this woods. There's honey everywhere, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath, that they would be punished or killed. But Jonathan, who hadn't heard the oath, reaches out with the end of his walking stick and scoops up a bunch of honey, and he takes it in his mouth, and immediately he's refreshed. Honey is a great form of natural energy, and it immediately gets transferred into energy and invigorated him quicker than just about anything else. And honey is often used to increase uh, physical stamina and energy level because it's so easily and quickly absorbed into the bloodstream. So this is what happens uh, with Jonathan. But he's going to, he might pay the price for this. For in verse 28, we're told that your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed. And this word for cursed is the same word that's used to describe the curse in Genesis chapter 3. It is a harsh, a term of harsh judgment in the, in the uh, Hebrew. Cursed is the man who eats food this day, but the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, well, my tr- father has troubled the land. Now, this is an interesting word for uh, for trouble here. This is a word that is not the word causing distress that was used earlier and was also translated trouble. This is a word that indicates the social dimensions of a, somebody's action, that, that their actions are causing trouble uh, among all, all of the people. It is a word that was used by Jephthah to describe the trouble that his daughter has caused when she comes out of the tent to greet him when he came home, and he had made this a rash vow as well that he would sacrifice whatever came out of the door of his house to, to greet him. It's a word that is used of Simeon and Levi when they uh, had their little uh, uh, revenge on the men of Shechem, and they uh, talked them into uh, getting getting uh, circumcised uh, in uh, in preparation for a wedding between uh, Dinah and the uh, son of Shechem, and they just um, they troubled Israel. And it's also used to describe Achan when he took the booty from Jericho and uh, refused to obey the Lord there. That he troubled uh, Israel, and then it's also used when Ahab sees. Elijah running to catch up with him after the showdown on Mount Carmel. And when Elijah catches up with him, Ahab says, What do you want, you troubler of Israel? So this is a word that talks about somebody's actions that has consequences uh, through all, throughout all of the people. So 
That's what Jonathan is saying here, why he uses that word. My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I taste a little of this honey. And that's exactly what would happen. He's been fighting all day. He's worn out. Uh, he's lost energy. He's about to collapse. And all of a sudden, he's completely reinvigorated by eating. And it shows how foolish Saul was because he kept his his people from from being restored, having their energy restored to carry the battle to full fruition. And now he's created a horrible situation. Verse 30 we read, Jonathan says, How much better it be if the people had taken freely the spoil of their enemies when they, when they did this. And so the rest of this uh, episode talks about what happens. Uh, evening finally comes. The people get the spoil from the Philistines. They rush on it. But they're, they're eating it raw, they're drinking the blood, which was very pagan. And finally Saul is told that he, this is causing uh, great sin among the people. And so Saul says, well, you've de- dealt treacherously, roll a stone to me this day. Now, how many people of you have any idea what that means? Well, if you're a hunter, you probably have an idea. If you're going to have a sacrifice, you can't just put the animal down on the ground and slit it from throat to the bottom and open it up and drain the blood. You need some elevation. And so by bringing a big stone, you can lift the animal up on top of the stone, and then and this would be later be used as part of the altar. And so you use that elevation to be able to drain the blood uh, out of the animal. And then Saul uh, tells the people, tells them to disperse the people, and to uh, not to sin and to cook the meat, uh, which they did. And he built an altar to the Lord, which was the first altar, we're told, in verse 35 that he had done. And then that night he decides to go down to the Philistines and to plunder them. Now what happens is he comes up with this plan to attack the Philistines at night, and uh, the people said, okay, we'll go along with that, do whatever seems good to you, And the priest says, well, let's consult God about this first. At least one person, Ahijah, is thinking about consulting God before you run into battle. So when they did that, Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines, and will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But God doesn't answer. Well, why doesn't God answer? God doesn't answer uh, because Saul's made this oath. Jonathan violated the oath. So this is a really odd situation here, and it's going to teach an important principle. Saul is out of line because of his oath. He represents a government, a kingdom, that has stepped out of bounds and putting a mandate upon uh, his people. And so he's going to discover who's done this. So he separates Israel. He doesn't think Jonathan's done. In fact, he swears that, that even if it's Jonathan who's the source of this problem, uh, Jonathan would die. It's the same kind of situation that, he's, that goes back to Achan in, in Judges. When the, the Israelites had defeated Je- uh, Jericho, they were told not to take any booty whatsoever, not to take any animals, not to take any gold or silver, not to take, but destroy everything. Achan took treasure and he hid it under his tent. Now, when the Israelites went out to do battle against uh, I the next day, they were defeated, and many were killed. And so God, so so Joshua just just absolutely goes into panic palace because God's deserted them. And God said, "No, it's not your fault, but there's sin in the camp, and you've got to deal with the sin in the camp before you can have victory." And so they called out all the tribes, and they went through this process of elimination uh, by tribe and by clan until they get down to the family of Achan. Now, that's what uh, Saul has in mind here. We're going to go through a process of elimination by casting lots and see who's going to be identified by God as the uh, one who broke the oath. And, of course, that turns out to be uh, to be Jonathan. And what happens, look down to verse 44. Saul uh, answered, when Jonathan admitted what he had done, that he had eaten the honey, even though he didn't know anything about the oath, Saul said, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul is bent on killing Jonathan. He is going to make matters worse. He's already 
had a foolish decision. Now he's going to have an immoral one. And this is an example of genuine, what I would call civil disobedience. God has mandated that believers obey the authority set over them. But not when the authority set over them is an authority that has violated the standards of God. And we see in this a, a, a reminder of the principle in Acts 5.29 where Peter said that they must obey God rather than man. And so as the people, as, as Saul is about to have Jonathan executed, the people intervene and say, say, Jonathan's not going to die. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, in verse 45, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescue Jonathan. They violate the authority of, of Saul because he wants to do the wrong thing. And so this is an example uh, when it is legitimate, one of the few examples when it's legitimate to disobey a God-ordained authority. And so we're told in verse 46, in a summary, Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. In other words, they go down to the coast, and there's now going to be a time of peace and tranquility. Next time, we're going to see that this peace and tranquility only extended to the Philistines because Saul continues to engage Israel's enemies, which is his responsibility. So Saul's not all bad. He fulfills a lot of his responsibilities. He's just disobedient to God, but God is leaving him in place to accomplish certain things. We'll come back and start up with this next time in verse 47. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be reminded that you deal with us in grace again and again and again. We don't deserve it. Many times we're disobedient. Many times we are rebellious like Saul. But nevertheless, you continue to meet us with grace. You continue to forgive us as we confess sin. And you continue to work to, uh, to mature us and to bring us along in our spiritual growth. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the importance that we be grace-oriented to others even as we understand your forgiveness toward us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.